think what's important to, 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 to recognize is that at that time, the late 70s into the 80s, there was a general pushback on the traditional religions anyway. That was kind right. of the beginning of the New Age movement. People were kind of looking into all sorts of different things. So at that time, everyone was into something. And so uh, the fact that our group kind of was this mismatch of there's like um, Hindu Vedanta, there was Buddhism, it was basically embracing all religions and trying to find the commonality in them rather than the differences, which is a really powerful concept. Um, because when you break a lot of the religious texts down, there's a lot more similarities than Correct. there are differences. So yes. I think it's a great way to, to look at it. But it was all done really obviously with an ulterior motive, which at the time you don't know. And I will never beat myself up for what I signed up for. Mm -hmm. Now, what it actually was is something very different. It only took me 20 years to figure that out. You, you'll never forget the trauma, but if you find a way to process it and take ownership of it and do your best to heal it in many ways, um, it will still, you'll never forget it, but it can actually become something quite empowering. These type of things are great teaching tools because um, I certainly discovered that enduring what I went through that I'm a lot stronger than I'd ever give myself credit for. And I think that's what tragedy or so-called crises can teach us, that um, that we bring more to the table. We've got more you know, moxie in, in ourselves than we probably imagine. And, and I really believe, you know, no one gets put in a situation they can't handle. Yeah. I really believe we've all been dealt winning hands. It's just, we have to learn how to play it. I would have never imagined that going through a 20-year cultic experience would have prepared me for this <laughs> pandemic thing. I spent 20 years thinking the end of the world was coming. So I know how destructive that is on your psyche. Yeah. I, I lived that. And, and I know how that is literally like a Pac-Man that is just eating at your soul. It's like a cancer. Um, people were being indoctrinated. And, uh, and that was pretty wild to witness that this crazy experience I went through allowed me to kind of... Uh, go through this pandemic with a very different lens that I would have had otherwise. So yeah. another silver lining to uh, being a cult child. Hey everyone, it's Jennifer. I know that was a long intro, but there was just too much good stuff in it to not include it all. As you can probably tell, my next guest is going to share his experiences of living in a cult for 20 years. I met Hoyt Richards not long after he left the cult. And it's been such a gift to bear witness to the humility and strength he's gained as a result and the work he's doing out in the world now. Hoyt was one of the biggest names in modeling in the late 1980s and 1990s. He appeared in hundreds of advertising campaigns and was photographed by Bruce Weber, Richard Avedon, and Helmut Newton, just to name a few. Yet despite a picture-perfect and glamorous lifestyle, no one knew Hoyt was trapped in a cult called Eternal Values. Hoyt is now a successful actor and producer and is using his experience to educate people about the dangers of cult-like behavior and mind control. This is a fascinating conversation you don't want to miss. So grab a cocktail, a tea, buckle up, and get ready for Hoyt Richards' story. Let's start from the very beginning. Let's talk cults. Yeah. <laughs> do you have okay. any experience in that area? I do have a little bit of experience that. From uh, my wee... Young age of 16 is when my journey with cults began. Um, have you had any exposure to cults? Or? It can be debated. Yeah. It can be debated or, maybe on the fringes of one or two. I think anytime you're in a spiritual world, 
or seeking, uh, a spiritual seeker, you can tend to start to slide down that rabbit hole. Well, it's true. And, and, and when I, having had this uh, conversation with thousands of people at this point, um, I found it's better to frame it um, that I had a cultic relationship with a group. Okay. Because when people hear the word cult, they tend to uh, spiral into kind of the media's perception of what a cult has been portrayed at, which is like Jonestown or mm. Charlie Manson or Waco, all these like extreme, extreme, violent, um, you know, murderous events. And so sometimes I find when trying to, to have the conversation with someone explaining what my experience was, it's a big hole to dig out of. Mm-hmm. So when I presented as saying I had a cultic relationship with a group, people go, well, what's a cultic relationship? And that is a better place to start because most cultic relationships are like the ones you just described, generally one-on-one relationships. And it's a relationship, it's a clinical term where the person that you're seeking love and approval from is the person who is in some way controlling and abusing you. And that dynamic has occurred because either consciously or usually unconsciously, you've given away your power to that person, given them a position of authority kind of over you. And, um, and because of that, they're taking advantage. And unfortunately, we all get very traumatized by that type of relationship. Now, if you don't diagnose it correctly as a cultic relationship, then people are usually pretty effective at getting out of that relationship, but not necessarily dealing with the trauma. Healing from it. Yeah. So they're out of the situation, and, but they're right, not going to they, heal. They, they kind of just write it off as a bad relationship. And because of that, more often than not, a lot of people start that cycle of finding a similar relationship mm. and not understanding why they keep drawing this relationship into their lives because it all goes back to that initial wound, that initial trauma that if, if left unhealed or undealt with or undiagnosed, you can't get the medicine if you haven't gotten the diagnosis. So in my case, because it was more extreme and because a cultic relationship with a group, obviously you now got a peer pressure element because there's this group dynamic and the stakes are so much higher because it's just not one person you're trying to please in this case. In our group, which was a doomsday cult, um, you know, it's the fate of the world lies in balance. So that's like dialing the whole thing up on steroids. So that nature of the experience that I went through um, was so extreme that I was forced to figure out what had happened to really move down a path of recovery. And uh, one of the the unexpected kind of silver linings to that journey was once I figured out what it was and I started to move down my recovery path, um, I realized it was very important for me to have conversations with people and try to explain to them how it happened mm-hmm. and what happened because everyone was kind of looking at me like, dude, what the hell happened, right? And so to answer that question, I had to really develop some communication skills and obviously do a lot of homework to be able to put it into words of what my experience was in a way that I thought was user-friendly. And what the silver lining that I didn't expect was instead of just hoping to build some compassion and empathy for what I had gone through so that people would feel comfortable having the conversation Mm -hmm. so that I wouldn't feel that I would have to hide about this 
portion of my life, nor would they feel uncomfortable asking me about it. I wanted to foster those kind of conversations. Mm -hmm. But um, as I got better at telling the story and, and, and breaking it down into the dynamics that were at play, because they're really power dynamics, instead of them just understanding and finding relatability to what I went through, I would see that they were playing a relationship in their minds mm. and going like, wait a second, this sounds like the relationship I have with my dad or <laughs> this sounds like I had this with my coach or my boss. Yeah. or And that's where I started going, my God, this is really a universal condition that because I went through the extreme version of it, it's potentially a, a teaching tool for those to recognize the more subtle version in their lives that they've all experienced, but not necessarily labeled it correctly. Right. So it's any time we give our power away to where someone, I mean, whether I think consciously or unconsciously, has some sort of yeah. control over us. Yeah. Which, to me, it, it kind of enforces the philosophy that it does all come from self, right? Like we, especially with younger people, mm -hmm. obviously that's the worst type because they're doing it unknowingly or they're asking for love or seeking love usually. But I think as adults, we have to be conscious of when we give our power away. And we have those faculties, hopefully, within us. But if they weren't trained, then it's, you know, maybe in a situation where we find ourselves in currently. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I, th I think because of that, you know, it, it's one of these things that generally, certainly when you consider uh, the cultic dynamic as far as it relates to cultic groups or, you know, finding a teacher um, that sort of thing, where someone's kind of overtly seeking some answers. You know, right. and like I, I'd like to try to describe it as um, if you're if you're asking some of the bigger questions in life, like why am I here? What am I supposed to do with my life? What's my purpose? What kind of footprint am I going to leave behind once I kind of uh, go? Um, those are incredibly wonderful and valid questions to ask, and if you mention that to any friend they'll usually be like oh my god that's so great you're kind of in that seeker mode and you're really kind of good for you really encouraging i hope you find some answers but no one really says to you uh oh by the way be careful because <laughs> every kind of manipulator and narcissist out there will see you literally as a target on your chest and will almost seek you out because you're in that mode of wanting to kind of find answers because that is the prey right and you know, so, so I think that's one of the things that needs to shift is when we go through that point in our life, which usually is hopefully is when you're a little bit younger, but it can happen at any point, you know, that, that people can say, be encouraging, but also carry with the forewarning of like, be careful, because that's when we're very vulnerable. Well, yeah, and I think about though, like if, if you're seeking those questions, the answers to those questions at an early age, it's your parents that should be offering you a little bit of guidance so you don't look to the wrong places. And it's why it's so important that you have, and I think a lot of us didn't, or and I'll, you can tell the story, but if you don't have a parent answering or a faith or mm. some sort, and it doesn't have to be religion, but there's some positive aspects of religion. I think in its highest form, it it does answer some of those questions yeah. and that it can be a source of guidance in a manipulated form. It's dogmatic and it's punishing and it's guilt. But I think in its 
and its highest good, that's what it's meant to do. And when you don't have that, then you're going to go out outwardly yeah. to seek it. If you're a seeker, no, I if you're think, asking yeah, those and, and, and I and I think you know a lot of these stories are really important to tell in the context of when they happened. And and for me, so this was I was going through this in the late seventies, early eighties, and and just, how old were you? So I was sixteen when I first met my guru. Um, his name was Freddie Myers, but by the time I had met him, he had converted to Frederick von Mears. Oh, wasn't so, uh, that a fancy yes. name? <laughs> so he, he, uh, his Brooklyn Jewish background became this kind of wasp Dutch um, European background that was completely manufactured by himself. Oh, uh, interesting. And so uh, he's, he's an interesting character study in and of himself. Um, I've only found out recently that... Uh, that when he w he was born to a 16-year-old unwed mom and uh, had a sister by the same uh, man. And then I think she did marry someone, had two more sisters. So he never talked about having any sort of sibling. He claimed that he had been um, orphaned at four and was brought up by his great-grandmother or his godmother or something like that. So a completely manufactured past, Yeah. Um, which is... You know, telltale, I guess. But you yeah. know, I, I think what's important to, 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 to recognize is that at that time, late 70s into the 80s, there was a general pushback on the traditional religions anyway. That was kind right. of the beginning of the New Age movement. People were kind of looking into all sorts of different things. So, so when I tell people my story, I try to uh, convey to them that at that time, and I was in New York City uh, when a lot of this was happening, um, people were all, everyone was into something and so uh, the fact that our group kind of was this mismatch of there's like um, Hindu Vedanta there was Buddhism but basically embracing all religions and trying to find the commonality in them rather than the differences which is a really powerful concept um, because when you break a lot of the religious texts down there's a lot more similarities than Correct. there are differences so yes. I think it's a great way to, to look at it but it was all done really obviously with an ulterior motive, which at the time you don't know. And, and that's what I try to uh, convey to people is that I will never beat myself up for what I signed up for. Mm -hmm. Now, what it actually was is something very different. It only took me 20 years to figure that out. But I did, thankfully, and, and some people haven't. And, uh, and, and I say that, you know, we're talking now 40 years later, and uh, some of the people um, still have not ever really made peace with what actually happened and what i mean by that is the abuse and the trauma that occurred and you know there, there's such a um an easy approach to try to spin things in a positive way and say oh it's just part of my spiritual journey and it was just you know and, and take i'm going to take the positives from it but the truth is if you do not deal with trauma trauma will never go away it's like getting in a car accident deal with you yeah and and so You'll never forget the trauma, but if you find a way to process it and take ownership of it and do your best to heal it in many ways, um, it will still, you'll never forget it, but it can actually become something quite empowering. Mm. And if you choose to avoid it or deny it or um, just, you know, uh, just move forward and, and put it in the rearview mirror, so to speak. Um, it comes out in other ways, and uh, and that's what I've witnessed. That to me, that is probably 
the most tragic aspect of the story in, my, in, in the group I was in, because our group was not large. We were maybe uh, at max 100 people. And, mm. uh, and there was a lot of turnover, and I'd probably say the core group was probably closer to 50. Um, but within that, call it 100, um, I would say there are four, maybe five, that can admit it was a cultic group and, and can actually articulate what that is and can uh, oh, talk about it. Really? So you have 95% of them that are incredibly unhealed and still traumatized. And that wow. is, to me, the greatest tragedy of it all. Well, is he still alive? No. So it's not still functioning. They just have kind of moved on and turned a blind eye. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was fortunate enough uh, because I was the, um, the primary cash cow um, that when I left the group and finally figured out what it was and uh, started to deal with a lot of suppressed anger and resentment that I had from the way I've been treated and also the fact that they were living in a house that I had paid for. They were functioning on businesses that I had financed and I was struggling to make rent. Um, you know, I finally decided to go on the attack and I sued them and took down what was left of the group. I mean, I was retrieving pennies on the dollar, but it was one of those kind of, as they say, pyrrhic victories. You know, it's just nice to kind of face my demons and kind of um, address the things that for so long I've been too afraid to kind of confront. And, uh, and I was able to um, deal with it legally. And, um, you know, and it, was, it, was, it was really one of the most disturbing things that I encountered in that whole journey was being in the mediation and, and hearing the uh, the other members, you know, just lie under oath and do things that I know I probably would have done just two, three years before that when I was still indoctrinated. And so as irritating and annoying that was, um, I was just so grateful to be on my side of the table yeah. and not be doing what they were doing. And, um, and so I try to have compassion for everybody because everyone really got abused. Everyone really got traumatized. And, uh, and I want them all to find healing in whatever way they can. But I've learned that um, obviously you can't do healing for someone and someone has to want to get healing. And it's been, it's been an aspect of my recovery uh, process of recognizing not only was I trying to heal my own wounds, but in this process of me going down this path, everyone in my family and friends, like anyone who cared and loved me, got involuntarily dragged on this journey with me. Because... Uh, um, that's just, it's like having a drug addict in the family. You know, you, you watch someone starting, albeit under the influence or whatever, you know, fall prey to the drug or, or a bad environment of a group of people and doing things that are clearly self-sabotaging and self-destructive. And you as the friend or sibling or parent feel powerless to stop them. You suffer a very deep wound. Yeah. And so as I was trying to put my life together and trying to foster these conversations to hope putting everyone's concerns at peace, at least somewhat, it was very became very apparent to me just how wounded everyone else was as well from this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And because it's that typical thing of human nature of, even when you're in way over your head, which I think any of us would be like coming up against a cult or coming up against an addict, the human nature is always like, I could have done more, I should have done this, I should have done this. So we just self-flagellate like crazy. and and carry such guilt around it. So even in the best case scenario, like a story like mine, where I actually did figure it out, got out of the group, got back on my feet, 
have been able to talk about it, there's still these old wounds that remain unhealed because there's this avoidance of acknowledging what they how they got wounded, and uh, and because all the focus is like, are you okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay? I'm like, listen, I'm I'm in the process doing my thing, but how are you doing? Well, I'm fine. What do you What do you mean? I'm fine, and I can see yeah. the wound. You know, it's like so. So that's just something I live with, which is not great. Um, that's not to say there hasn't been some healing that's gone on. There's been some that's been wonderful, but I can still see certain friends and family members that are just deeply wounded. And you know, and I realize <clears throat> I'm not the one to like uh, I have the power to fix that. You know, I can try to foster those conversations and try to be a resource, but I can't be the one to make it happen. And that's just something you just live with. Mm. Well, there's a little bit of karma in that, I yeah. think, you oh, know, sure. they... Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, I think ultimately, it's, like I said earlier, I think these type of things are great teaching tools because um, I certainly discovered that enduring what I went through, that I'm a lot stronger than I'd ever give myself credit for. And I think that's what tragedy or so-called crises can teach us, that um, that we bring more to the table, we've got more... You know, moxie in, in ourselves than we probably imagine, and and I really believe you know no one gets put in a situation they can't handle. Yeah. I really believe we've all been dealt winning hands. It's just we have to learn how to play it. You know, and and that's, and that's not saying that's easy. It's a it's a lifetime challenge. Yeah. But I really believe we've all been dealt a winning hand, and so um, you know I also believe very much in the in the in the law of karma, and and I even believe in reincarnation because I, I have a very hard time looking at the myriad of existence in the world and think that everybody gets one shot. I'm like, that doesn't seem too fair to me. Yeah. That, that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't, you know, someone gets born in, into a palace, someone's born with uh, no legs and, you know, poverty stricken, yeah. you know, uh, someone dies at five, you know, and, uh, whatever. I mean, it can go on and on. It just doesn't seem very fair, but it's just a one shot deal. Yeah. So I think uh, I'd like to believe that we're carrying some stuff with us that we're working out and there's always another shot to you know get it figured out you know in the next lifetime and so as crazy as things are going on even right now in the world you know i still think uh you know this is just a school for us to learn from and uh, not to take it any of it really too seriously yeah yes yes <laughs> or or it becomes life becomes very hard that way i mean i yeah. learned that the hard way right yeah like, yeah we all do i think there's a lot of joy out there if we're willing to open our eyes to it. Um, yeah. Not to say that there's no pain and no struggle, but you can easily find the pain as you can the joy. And which are you going to choose? So many of my conversations have been around that, especially, you know, coming out of this lockdown period. And Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would actually say that um, people had a very cultic experience with COVID. Mm. You know? And what I mean by that is when you think of cultic behavior, it usually involves indoctrination and it usually you end up in some for, form of an extreme belief system. All right. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the way COVID kind of unfolded, people usually fell in one of two camps. Either it's a total hoax or it's the end of the world. Now, those are both very extremist points of view. And mm -hmm. I would say both also very indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. You don't get there on your own. And, and, and my greatest example of that was during the uh, two weeks to flatten the curve, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, uh, I remember, I mean, walking out right here at my, uh, my apartment and, um, you know, going down the, the block and I see this other guy who's like a block and a half away. 
and he recognizes I'm a human, <laughs> freezes and then bolts across the side of the other side yeah. of the street. And that kind of behavior freaked me yeah, out. Yeah, and I was like, it's like this is not the zombie apocalypse. And <laughs> and uh, but I, I also I also know from having gone through my own cultic experience that you do not arrive there on your own. That is an indoctrination process. That to get wow. to that type of fear minded reactionary mindset that is an indoctrination process so i was like wow this is pretty serious what's going on here right now because i would have never imagined that going through a 20-year cultic experience would have prepared me for this <laughs> pandemic thing but you know but i mean our whole group was like you know we thought the whole i mean i spent 20 years thinking the end of the world was coming so i know how destructive that is on your psyche yeah. i i live that and and i know how that is literally like a pac-man that is just eating at your soul it's like a cancer because that type of extremist you know depressing idea um really really critically you know uh, affects your ability well it affects your ability to critically think and certainly you you are constantly walking on eggshells and, and live in fear so when I, I so i immediately recognize the behavior i'm like wow this is we, a fear-based and of like, course from my point of view i'm like hey i thought the end of the world was come for 20 years like this is a bad flu everybody needs to maybe relax a little bit yeah, like relax yeah and but i but that was falling on deaf ears and i could just see that this was again you know whether you want to look at the media or whatever the way it was being done um people were being indoctrinated and uh and that was pretty wild to witness that this crazy experience i went through allowed me to kind of uh, go through this pandemic with a very different lens that I would have had otherwise. So yeah. another silver lining to uh, being a cult child. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's really wild you know, to, to think about how it all has unfolded and, um, and where we go from here. I, I'm not really sure. I can certainly say I feel comfortable in saying that I think there's going to be a massive amount of PTSD and emotional illness fallout from this. Yeah. I think, I think people have been massively traumatized. I think, uh, but in a way they don't even know. Because yeah, in, in I, a way, I it was you're doing good. Yeah. If you stay at home, you're doing your part. Sure. You're doing good. So they're like, "Well, I'm a good person. There's nothing happening." Like you said, it's the subtle fear that it's like being IV dripped is yeah, what well, it I seemed mean, like I'm, to I mean, me. The, the longer it went on, and that's what you do in the cult. You're, you're, you're once you're. See, the thing that's so interesting to me um, is that people think, and I think it, it happens to people maybe uh, who come back from war, not, and I'm not comparing that I've been to war, but you know, going through the cultic experience is quite traumatic in the sense you know, of this massive control trip. And, and so you would think once you're released from the control, things would be so much easier in the same way that if I was, you know, having a drink with a buddy who was he had been in Afghanistan, and he's clearly having some odd behavior, and and you, you know, a lot of people could turn to him and just say, like, what, dude, what's the problem? I mean, there's no guns going off here. You're fine. Right. You're back in America. Right. But you have no idea what this person's gone through. Right. And that type of trauma that coming back, it's actually, as I tell people, as shitty as cult life was, the aftermath has been so much more difficult because not only did I have to assimilate what happened in that cult life but then i had to process it take ownership of it you know self-educate so i could forgive myself and then deal with this kind of like label that i had to kind of try to offset 
so that I could feel like I could fit back into society. Reintegration. Yeah, and 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 then also, like I said, monitor and deal with all these wounds that had happened because of these, you know, choices I had made, albeit controlled or influenced, but still it affected almost everyone I loved and cared about. And so just trying to manage all that stuff was, has been so much harder because being in the cult, life's pretty simple. It's very black and white, which is how you control people. And that's kind of the way COVID's been done. Like, here are the rules. Either, either you follow them yeah. or you're bad. So in that mindset, you're very, very, you know, capable of knowing, you know, to the best of your ability, what's right or wrong. And, you know, uh, in the cult life, I can certainly say most of the time you find out what you're doing is wrong. But so you're, so you're usually either in trouble or about to be in trouble. But it's very, that's kind of your existence. And, 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 you know, for me, it was kind of like I had lost touch with what a good day had been like, because the way my days had been registered over that 20 year period was either I'm overtly experiencing pain or I am about to possibly experience pain. But this idea of actually having a good day where I didn't even worry about having pain wasn't even on my radar. Relaxed, yeah. easy, free. Wasn't even on that. So, yeah. And even if I started to feel that way, I felt guilty about it, like I was doing something mm. wrong. So, so trying to make sense of all that and get okay. It uh, was one of the things, uh, one of the early counselors and therapists said, you know, they said one of the hardest things it's going to be for you to, to learn is actually just to take a vacation. Cause when you're planning for the end of the world, you can't take vacation. Like every moment counts, <laughs> you know? And so There's I never, no vacation. yeah, I never took a vacation or anything. Or, or I mean, even sleep was frowned upon. It was like sleeps for pussies, you know? And, and, uh, and so, but when you're sleep deprived, you're much more easily yes. influenced. So it all kind of has a reasoning behind it, whether it's conscious or not. But that's just kind of the, the drill sergeant approach that kind of happens with a lot of these groups. And, and so for, you know, for our group, it was very much, you know, I mean, we had a whole little, <laughs> you know, sci-fi bent to it. You know, we, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I can laugh at it all when I look back at it, but at the time, um, you know, this guy, uh, Freddie, was all into astrology and uh, and he was he made this big statement, which, you know, isn't irrational, but basically saying that in between earthly incarnations, you would spend time on other realms within the universe. Like we're not limited to Earth. Right. Now, being an open minded science fiction buff, I'm like, awesome. I totally <laughs> believe that. Like, I like the idea that I've been different planes of consciousness, that, yeah, different planes, yeah. planets, dimensions, sure. whatever. Like, it all yeah. sounds great to me. So, so I found that very appealing. Mm-hmm. And then when he would give you, you your so-called astrological reading or life reading or, or astrological chart, so to speak, um, he would sometimes incorporate where some of these other realms you'd been to. And he did this mainly because he wanted to, at some point, let you know that the place that he considered home... Well, <laughs> this is so crazy. So... <laughs> The place that he considered home was this star, Octurus. And Octurus is actually a star. It's a legit star. Um, doesn't have any planets as far as I know, but he claimed that we were in these, like, Lalique light bodies, you know, like a, like, a, like a crystal structure, right? And just happened to be the spiritual center of the universe. Just happened to be. But that's what he considered home. And that if we had crossed his path, there was the chance that we had also been on Octurus and that might be the deeper connection that we're actually having. And and for those of us who actually got very involved in the group, which is called Eternal Values, um, it's kind of catchy. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, so the idea was that we had all 
kind of met up in this realm of Arcturus and these light bodies. And it was kind of like we went into a big huddle and we're talking about Earth. And we're saying, now oh, Earth's going through these real trials and tribulations. Let's all sacrifice ourselves and go back down and help out. Um, the only catch was the majority of us were not going to remember. Now, Freddie was, and Freddie was going to not only remember, but he was going to basically wrestle us all up and put, Bring the, team you all back. Back. Yeah. put the team back together. So, yeah. so in the early, the chosen one. in the early, exactly, in the early uh, you know, years of, of getting involved with the group, not only were you being kind of told about, you know, maybe these other lifetimes you'd had or, you know, you know, potentially you could have in this lifetime. It was all under the auspices of, you know, would you eventually maybe be anointed as one of the Octarians? And so I've had a lot of people saying, well, didn't you like think that was weird or like, you know, this who lives on a star and how you and the only thing I can relate to people at that point, I just so wanted to be included. That was right. more important. Right. And in the same way, he claimed to be in touch with the space people who were going to eventually lift us out of here while this horrible world event was going to happen. It was going to wipe out virtually 99% of the population. We were going to be lifted off, put in rejuvenation chambers, trained, illumined, you know, enlightened, and then we we're going to come back and kind of resettle Earth and make, put things right. So all of that was like a dream out of Star Wars or something for me. But I never, you would have thought I would have asked like, uh, well, how do you know you're talking to the good space people versus the bad? <laughs> Never, I did, just the fact that it no was, questioning. Yeah, the fact yeah. there's a possibility and the fact that I was yeah. included, and and that's the part that's kind of, you know, humbling and embarrassing to admit because the lack of of real investigation because I just it, it goes down to that that statement we hear all the time: people believe what you want to believe, and I and he had just dangled a carrot that sounded so attractive to me that I was just willing to go along. And and even when I started, um, when I started modeling and doing all those things and, and, uh, you know, he had this thing where he just thought everyone should be tan. (laughs) So everyone in our group was super tan and he was the tannist. And, uh, and this is in the early to mid eighties. And that's when tans were in, tanning machines came out. (laughs) Tans were were in. So we're like blasting our faces with tanning machines and everything and uh and i remember it like uh you know other people saying are you aren't you worried about damaging your skin and all the thing you're doing and in my mind i'm like it doesn't matter i'm gonna be in the rejuvenation chamber in 10 years you know i can do whatever i want to this thing this thing's gonna be completely rejuvenated this is just my costume so in a way which is in a way true <clears throat> no, i mean that's the thing well, there's yeah. always some truth in there, these oh there is you know and i think it's a, it's a great it's a great point you bring up because i i, I try to uh convey that to people that usually I'd say virtually 90% of the information you usually get exposed to is legit. Because, I mean, we were we were reading the Hindu Vedas. Hindu Vedas are great scriptures. Amazing. They're amazing, Best. right? You know? yeah. And so so you can't take... And, and if you look at... Uh, I think there's about 10,000 active cults in um, America right now. Really? Yeah. And, and a lot of them are literally groups like mine, under 50 people, so they're invisible to society. Uh, but they... I would they estimate that probably eighty to eighty five percent of them are Bible based. So you can't say the Bible's the problem. But you right. know, the Bible is is the hook because the Bible, you know, not unlike the Vedas, it's a very inspirational text. You can draw a lot of insight and a lot of um you know, realizations from it. And so and it offers guidance and wisdom. But it all comes down to interpretation and then ultimately whatever that interpretation, how does it manifest in behavior? And that's where the contradictions occur. Because like in our group 
these so-called values, the eternal values, and with the Vedas or whatever else we were reading, we read the Bible and all these things, um, was, was never really consistent with what we were reading. But the fact that that was the case was never actually owned up to. It was always that you, the person questioning that, were the problem. And the fact that you were newer to the group, you had not yet learned to keep your mouth shut and just go along with what um. everyone else is doing. So that's the indoctrination process. I mean, the, the way it's commonly described is how you boil a frog. You know, you throw a frog in the hot water, it jumps right out. But if you put a frog into room temperature water and incrementally turn it up, it'll stay in there till it boils. So that is the process. Oof. It's a very incremental thing that starts happening. And you're, you have the peer pressure element of everyone else kind of not asking questions or going along. They've been here longer and don't be a problem and that sort of thing. And, and you, your critical thinking gets so eroded. I mean, I, I try to tell people because I, I now work um, in the cult survivor community quite actively and I do I occasionally do cases where I help families get their kids out of cultic situations. So I try to reassure the parents that that critical linking, uh, that critical thinking pilot light gets so turned down low but it never goes out. And what you're trying to do in the, mm. in the kind of intervention process is reignite that pilot light. And the way you try to do that is just get information to that person in a very non-confrontational way that might be different than what they're getting in, 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 their, yeah. in, their, in, in that little bubble they're in. And yeah. so you're looking to, you know, you're, you're always trying to build bridges, not foster confrontation. You know, confrontation just gets everybody to dig in their heels and, and being confrontational, usually, even if you're carrying a good message, every, the response of the typical cult leader, like it was with me, with my family, when they tried to do that is, I don't want to hear the message, I am just gonna kill the messenger and so that just does not get anywhere yeah. so you you have to try to um you know find a way in so you, you you tend to try to build a group where you can educate people to kind of understand the dynamics at play and then foster some sort of inter interactions with that person and try to get them information and it's kind of like i don't know if you ever saw horton here's a who the dr seuss book but it's like all the who's are trying to break the bubble so they can be heard, you know, and it's like it takes the one little baby who says the yop and that breaks the seal and then it says, We are here, we are here, we are here. And that's literally what it's like with the, 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 the pilot light on, you know, critical thinking. When you finally break through and that information goes in and that starts to generate and, the, and, the, and that flame starts to go back again, the person will pull themselves out. Like it's amazing. Mm. I've watched the light bulb go back on and it's literally like coming out of a flog fog and you are just what am i doing and you pull yourself out it's amazing to witness and that's a much more powerful technique than the old days where they would literally kidnap you and they would try to replace whatever programming the cultic group had put you through and give you the, the what they considered the correct cultic i mean correct programming so you're just you're just replacing replacing one, one without with any inner work and that so and you need the, you need the person to, to think for themselves yeah. and that's what you're trying to do yeah. so so just telling them that's wrong and this is the way it should be is not helping someone. They've got to start developing their own kind of moral compass and, and, and code and start to actually start seeing things again with their own eyes and start owning what they're, they're feeling and thinking about and talking about it. So you see that happening in present day? Yeah, yeah, I really do. I mean, um, it's really interesting to, to watch. And you see it in politics as well. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think... I've never been political because 
personally, all I see is like corruption and deception and and um, and just lies and and so. I got plenty of that in the cult. So it's like, I don't really need, I can't get really motivated. And it just seems like it's become very extremist. Um, there, you know, the so-called moderate doesn't really exist anymore. Right. You know, it's like either you're, you're all the way, you know, on one side, the left or the right. And I just don't think that's very constructive, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, and I'm not even convinced, you know, politics um, does what it's supposed to do anyway. I, you know, it seems like the people that are unelected and behind the scenes are the ones that are probably really pulling the strings and right. the people that actually get elected. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a big conspiracy buff because we believed in a lot of that stuff in the, in the, in the cult. But I, I just, my, my, my cultic experience has just made me very skeptical about a lot of things. And so I just prefer to take the point of view of being skeptical rather than just trusting what someone says on TV. I try to, you know, I think, you know, um, Listen, with all the crazy things that Donald Trump said, I think one of the best things he did was create the idea of the fake news. I think that was a really useful thing to our society in general. Kind of shattered the yeah, illusion of, yeah, yeah I do too. You know, and, 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 and I think it's hard to find you know, legit information. I'm not claiming the things that I find is either. I, I, I try to look at all of it as having some agenda and, and hoping that with ever, whatever I get exposed to, that it's probably somewhere closer to the middle than whatever extremist point of view you're, you're getting. But yeah. uh, um, it's certainly, a, yeah, it's an interesting time right now in the world. Yeah. And, uh, and, now, and now they're saying the aliens are coming. So, you know. You know, I've seen, it's so funny. <laughs> I've seen the headlines about aliens and UFOs. I haven't, I don't know what's, I haven't even clicked on it. I'm like, I can't, I can't even, I I, so don't tell me. I'm gonna. I'm going to choose to stay ignorant in okay. this case. No, it's, what's just interesting <laughs> from the point of view of why now? Mm. Yeah, because this this dialogue's been happening for decades. Uh, so, the Another, fact, you think it's a scare tactic? Or? Well, I don't know. I'm just saying that the fact that it's now coming through the Pentagon and it's coming through the military and also mm. it's very. It's kind of like. Well, why are you choosing now to admit that there potentially has been interactions with, you know, other planetary, whatever, I don't know, who knows. But it's, you know, I'm like, oh, maybe in the end the cult was right. Who knows? <laughs> so, you know, maybe the, maybe, maybe the pie's on my face. But, but you, know, I, and I, cause, cause I, you know, like you listen to Joe Rogan, he's totally into all that stuff. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, but it, it's, I just say it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting time to be around. Um, uh, but I think it's very hard to find your compass and to find you know uh, information that you feel is legit because it just seems that everybody's working an angle and uh, uh, and this know. is why I say without some foundation of connection to your own soul spirit God source to me that keeps me that's that's who I answer to end mm -hmm. of story not mm. the news, not mm. the government, not my parents, not that mm. is the my ultimate where my ultimate wisdom comes from. Now, mm. do I always behave in line with that? No. Mm -hmm. However, I have that as my anchor and my true north, right? Is my own connection with source, which I truly believe is the feeling resides in my heart. So mm. I once I reconnected with that, I'm like, oh, this is where my power is. Mm -hmm. My power is inside of me. It's not outside of me. It's granted to me through 
God, source, Buddha, whatever, you know, that's why I thought, like you said, all these religions can serve as guidance. But um, when you don't have that foundation of something, some sense of empowerment through that, not through ego, you're going to get pulled in so many different, in any direction that's the strongest, really. No, absolutely. For the past 10 to 12 years, fostered that relationship with myself, with God, with source. Um, And like you, I've luckily mm-hmm. not a cult but definitely group behavior right um and thank goodness you know our leader guru mm-hmm. had enough integrity where yeah. that was not his agenda but what other people i could see other people putting it on him and so the group dynamic like you said became strong yeah um if it was not from him it was from the group sure i was constantly seeking outside of myself and still i until i turned inwards mm-hmm. Um, but without that, I think your foundation is going to be very shaky. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's kind of a lifetime quest is, is figuring out that foundation, you know, and uh, and what really resonates with you, and you know, the, like the idea of what's truth, right? What's yeah. what's reality? I mean, um, I mean, anyone who's yeah, I'm one of those people who've delved in with the plant medicines, and really kind of you know, your your perceptions of reality are greatly altered when you kind of move into that very enhanced, expansive mindset. And, uh, I mean, you know, I think probably when you think about all the civilizations that came long before us, um, those plant medicines were probably the only way they had a ticket to make sense of anything that they were experiencing because they didn't have, not that therapy is the end all, but at least we have a tool now where people, you know, can do things like that. But back then they didn't really have that. So it seems like those kind of, um, you know, medicines and psychedelics just allowed you to kind of step, it's, it's basically a, an ego-killing experience, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's one of these things that I certainly know that um, I'm grateful for those experiences I've had, and I actually um, I feel like I feel badly that because of the way it's maybe been portrayed or the way it's been kind of skewed, through whatever different ways people get ex- exposure to it, that people would not even consider it when I think it could actually bring a lot of people a wonderful healing and peace of mind. And Are you talking uh, about psychedelics? Yeah. And MD- yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, they're using it a lot. There's more. now so many books that it's becoming yeah. more. Michael Pollan I, wrote his book. Yeah, Joe yeah. Rogan talks a lot about it. All these people are talking about psychedelics. And I, my only concern is if they just make them, well, one that the pharmaceutical companies will get a hold of this and mm. somehow pervert it and and add things to it right so yeah, they will they yeah, will de yeah. they will denude the the um the integrity of the plants i mean those are powerful things and they should be done in the right yeah. settings in with ritual with mm. um with reverence with deep reverence for mm. the earth and and you know one so my concern is the pharmaceutical companies are going to get a hold of it and somehow, like I said, pervert it. And two, it's, it's a valid concern. Yeah. yeah. At, or, you know, that they're they're done recreationally, um, and you know, MDMA is being considered in clinical settings. All of these things. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, the original MDMA was used for people that had um, chronic depression. You yeah. Know? And, yeah. And uh, manic depressives. You know, it's uh, so. It yeah. reconnects you back with that awe-inspiring, yeah. ever-powerful transcendence. Yeah, I mean, 
<laughs> I never thought I'd be advocating these type of things, but it's it's really their gifts, in my opinion. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's one of these things that you know, as as I have gotten older, and it was actually abused in in the uh, my cult life. You know, the initially we did it as a ceremony, and it was quite sacred and it was quite beautiful. What What did you use? We just used mushrooms. Mm. And uh, but then as time went on, and as the group got more kind of twisted and darker which kind of seems to be the case with most of these groups they, they all kind of start out with great intentions and right. then they kind of uh, so the way it would play out in the later years was because um, there's a thing called uh, the hot seat which happens in a lot of these group dynamics where uh, someone is being focused on who's considered to be kind of behaving out of um uh, congruence with the so-called principles whatever those might be right this reminds me of scientology don't yeah. they do this like a well yeah i mean they, a... they do they do they do it in, in most of these groups so yeah. so basically the group then starts to focus on this person like and it's like and anyone that you focus on you can find fault with like right. it takes so the way it would be done is it would build towards this moment when you would literally put this person down in a chair and the, like mob group assault them you know verbally and and the way the um, the procedure would be would be you know the leader usually leading the charge, but then everyone would have to kind of pile on and give their examples of how they had seen this, and and so you as the member being on the hot seat, a lot of times you might be having these kind of moments of doubt and um, lack of confidence and, and maybe confided in someone some of those things and this is in these settings this comes out and you feel absolute betrayal because you've talked to someone in confidence and they're now saying oh well, I remember him or her telling me this and that and completely throwing you under the bus and the other aspect of it was Jeez. that if you didn't pile on if you yeah. stayed silent it could it could easily turn on you because I can remember times when I did that and uh Either I wasn't comfortable, or I didn't have something to volunteer, or I just, whatever. Uh, and then it could turn to you and say, "Well, dear, why haven't you said anything?" And you'd be like, "And then the 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 mob comes on you, and now you're in the hot seat." So that can happen. So the 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 pressure to not only participate but pile on was just the way it worked. So ultimately, as time went on, to try to be more effective, because those big group settings were kind of. Uh, hard to get everyone together a group uh, a team would be put together of like four people maybe five and we'd be sent up to uh this guy had a house up in the berkshires in in uh, massachusetts and everyone would take mushrooms and you would being the person really didn't know what was happening and you go up there and thinking well we're going to do this kind of great little journey and then right while you're peeking they would turn towards you and just start ripping you an mm. asshole and that is, as you can imagine, incredibly traumatic in that heightened state. Mm -hmm. And and you just feel lower, like the lowest, you know, failed amoeba on the planet. And um, and you get this incredible thrashing. Uh, and then eventually, at the end, it's all brought back. Well, you know, we'll, we'll, you're just impossible, but we we'll, we put up with you because we love you and kind of try to mm -hmm. bring it all back together. But it's absolutely. Um, terrible and traumatizing and, and, and dangerous. And so for me in my later years, I've only started to, to recently kind of go back just to want to reframe those experiences on my own. And, um, and that's been really, really rewarding. I mean, I just have a different 
lens now. I mean, it's the same thing with my recovery. You know, people always say recovery never ends. And, and there's a lot of truth to that from the point of view that I don't feel like I'm constantly in recovery. Mm -hmm. But this has been such a wealth of information and um, knowledge that's come from out of this experience that I'm constantly reflecting on it as I get more information as I go through life. That new information causes me to look back and reflect in a different way than even I saw. So I can constantly see new angles, new aspects, new yeah. kind of realizations. So yeah, it's like it's like being a, a Terminator. You're a working computer. You just keep hopefully getting better at figuring out and processing stuff. And um, you know, I, uh, I I just embrace that process of, of realizing that that idea of getting to the place where you have it all figured out is such a trap and such a. Mm. I mean, I think I think people really struggle who um, have that desire to be right or to, mm -hmm. to have to be the smartest person in the room or or those you know the you know it's it's interesting I was I was talking to uh, uh, a dear friend of mine John Atak who I recommend you look into his podcast he, he was an ex-scientologist and he's literally an encyclopedia of knowledge like he, uh, but uh, you know we were talking about trauma and how uh, the the critical element to deal with um, certainly trauma, like like from from what I went through, is um, humility. Because you have to admit to yourself on some level that when you started interacting with this person or this group, that you were being worked or conned on some level, and that you got taken. And I mean, we are all getting conned and taken all the time. You wouldn't think it would be that big of a deal, but it's amazing to me, and I've witnessed it by people not being able to admit that to themselves, by not having the humility to say, I just got taken for a ride, that trauma stays in place and no healing. You know, it's literally like being stuck in time. It's like a time warp. And I have talked to people, because I've, you know, I'm looking into ways to tell this story, hopefully as a teaching tool, and trying to find a lot of these ex-members who have not processed it, and, and, and certainly the same way I have, mm -hmm. you know, and... I, it is literally like going back in time and seeing that they're still stuck, mm. and uh, and and so, and it's also really interesting to to look at things like like we say that someone's idealistic. We think that's really positive, but the truth is, when you think of someone who's got ideals, ideals are usually very black and white, and I've come to learn through this experience that the world is really about shades of gray. So this idea that you can make a right or wrong decision or that you know that you fall on one side or other of some sort of moral um, identity is a very very controlling idea. And so you know when we when we when when I would think of uh, of one of the reasons I found this group exciting was because of the um, idealism i now realize that was part of the problem <laughs> you know yeah. because it's like you're you're unconsciously looking for a shortcut like i just want to know what's right or wrong and i'll yeah. just do the things that are right but life is much more complicated and much more shades of gray and 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 i've just learned like listen whatever it's not about making right or wrong choices it's about making choices and, and whatever choice you make you're going to learn from it. whether you choose to do something or choose not to do something, you're still going to get some sort of feedback mechanism you're going to learn from. So can you really quantify it as right or wrong? Like whatever yeah. you do, you're going to learn from. Yeah. So we just keep doing the best we can. And hopefully as we go along, and if we did make a choice that didn't work out, 
in a way that we felt was too great in the past, and we find something similar now in the, fu- in the future or the present, we now have the opportunity to say, well, I did that thing the last time. Maybe I should try something else this time. But it's not about saying, well, what I did in the past was wrong, because if it's serving me right now, what's yeah. wrong with that? Yeah. So I think it's really kind of starting to flip this idea, idea and, and recognize on some level that this desire to find a shortcut you know, which is not conscious, but clearly something that's very appealing to all of us. Like when we're told we're special or that we're chosen or all these sort of things that we don't have to go through all the hard work that the person telling us, you know, mm-hmm. that you, that they've done it and they're going to just show you the things you need to know so you'll be okay because you're special. Well, we, that, that's, good luck with that. That's, that's a nice <laughs> hook that we fall for because it sounds good, right? And, yeah. and, and, uh, and that's really, really ultimately counterproductive. I just only know from having done it. And uh, and it's also this type of thing that as I've figured things out about um, you know, narcissistic personalities and, and how kind of compelling and charismatic they can be and, and, and how they can uh, spin a web around people like myself and, and, and I can become you know, heavily influenced by them. Just because I figured out that dynamic doesn't mean I'm now you know, yeah. impervious to it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'd like to say I think I'm getting faster at recognizing <laughs> it, but I still get taken. I still do. And, and so it's, it's not about arriving to that place where it's like, oh, I can relax. I got a little handle. It's like, no, we're just, you know, got to keep forging forward and doing the best we can. And uh, like I said, hopefully not take any of it too seriously. Have and, some fun along the way. Yeah. Well, so. it's a constant evolution. And the thing with... Um, I think with choices is this is okay are my choices leading me to where I want to be to what I truly desire in life mm-hmm. are my choices getting me that relationship that um, you know career or purpose mm-hmm. are they getting me closer to God do I feel more at peace do I feel more free do I feel more happy do I feel more joyous like who doesn't want that? Those to me are fundamental. Like that's who we are as human beings is are who we're meant to be. And are my choices getting me there? And if not, you need to seriously, like Jordan Peterson says, has a great thing. I was listening to um, his book, 12 Rules for Life. And he's talking about memory. He's like, memory is, is not a tool for you to stay in the past. Memory is for you to reflect upon, see the choices you made, so you don't make the same damn choices again. Like the way he says yeah, it is like, yeah. you've got to, if you're not, like relationship's just an easy one to, mm-hmm. to use in his example. If you're not in the relationship you want, intimate partnership that you want, then look at your choices. Like at some point, you've got to look at the choices you're making and you have to make different ones. It may not actually and doubt where you think, but it's probably going to get you more in the direction than what you've been doing right. for the past 25 but, years. But again, that takes humility, right? Right. You know, and, and that's where the rubber really meets the road. Like, are you willing to, to you know, look at that person in the mirror and say, okay, I need to self-reflect and take some ownership for some choices that yeah. I would prefer not to replicate these scenarios again. And... Um, and obviously, it's all about owning our half. And then, you know, I think that's one of the things that, that is so challenging when you're dealing with these kind of narcissistic personalities is that they have this inability to take their own half. And they have an inability to kind of take responsibility for their part in whatever you know, conflict that may be occurring. 
and that's where um, the gaslighting all takes place. It's always like you're the problem, you know. It's a and mm. and I certainly you know for me it was a really key component was to understand this narcissistic you know personality disorder because that was the piece that that really kind of came full circle for me understanding um, the cult leader and, and other people in my life who I'd drawn into my life that were like that all the way back even you know my mother had aspects of that you know and it's and it's just a coping mechanism it's it's someone who's been wounded you know usually very young in life they've either suffered abuse or some form of abandonment you know they're they're looking because of that um that wound they have issues around attachment mm -hmm. you know and when you have any form of an attachment disorder you have you have you can't really meet people on a common ground to actually build a true connection like your show you know it's like you you everything is maneuvered to try to avoid being left alone again or abandoned on some level mm -hmm. so it's this constant manipulative you know survival mechanism and just like a serial killer they get better at it and they refine it as they do it mm. you know now not every person who gets traumatized goes down that road but the ones that do they're really tr tricky to, to negotiate and the crazy part is they also seem to have an important role in our society because those are the people that usually end up running corporations and businesses and politicians <laughs> i mean there's clearly I certainly know I don't want to be a president. I don't necessarily want to be head of a, a corporation. I don't, you know, all, you know, all those responsibilities and all those sort of things. I think there almost has to be some kind of disconnect to even want that because it's a it's a, a vast amount of responsibility on, on one level, but it's also done with this idea that you have to make decisions that are going to make you know affect a number of people and the narcissist doesn't really go through that normal analysis thing of thinking, well, how's this going to affect everyone? They try to sell it as if they're going through that, but all they know is it's like their way of the highway. And, and they sell it as if they've kind of analyzed everything, and now they're going to say, this is the way to go. And all of us who normally have the normal psyche, those are like, well, oh my God, how did they think about all the different route, routes we could, we could have made and decided on that one? That's amazing. I wish they could be like them. Not realizing that's not what they're doing. Yeah. They're pretty unilateral in their yeah, focus. Like, this yeah. is the way it is. Yeah. And and but you know, if you don't understand that's what's going on, I mean that's why I think it's so important to do therapy and learn about these things because if you don't know what you're up against, you know, a lot of times you're projecting in essence a normal psyche on someone that doesn't have a normal psyche. Yeah. And that's why it doesn't fit, that's why it doesn't make sense. That's why we really struggle to communicate with that person. Yeah. And if we keep saying, that, you know, trying to talk to them as if they're normal, so to speak, we start thinking we're really bad communicators because mm. whatever we say doesn't seem to get through. But we don't realize with that type of personality disorder, it's like they have earmuffs on. They can only hear the words or, or ideas that allow them to stay in this bubble where they're the victim and it's never Protected. their fault and you know everyone it's everyone else is the problem and um and so you could have a conversation with them of five thousand words and they might only hear a hundred and you could talk to them five minutes later referencing that conversation and they're looking at you like what what are you, wow. what, are you what are you talking about a complete and, filter and, and you're like we just talked about this and then you start thinking god am i that terrible of a communicator like we just yeah. i thought i made my point <laughs> so mm -hmm. you start thinking you're the crazy person and, and that's why I think those type of dynamics and those type of personalities, the more we understand them, the more we're able to 
kind of see them for what they are, recognize them, and, and treat them, effect, you know, in, in essence, where the way they need to be looked at rather than just, oh, they're like everybody else. No, they, they've got kind of a, an illness. Yeah, I'm hoping that we're moving into an age where there's a little more consciousness around business, right? That these old types of leaders that may have mm -hmm. bits of what you're talking about, right. right? But I always say, like, I don't know how the CEO of Monsanto goes to bed at night. Mm -hmm. I really don't understand that. Or how the the leaders of these companies think they're doing good because they put a person on in the box that, that makes, um, mm -hmm. you know... Uh, um, What's the word? Like social justice mm. sense, right? Right. They put that person on the box, so they're good, yet they're killing people through sugar. You know, me. It, yeah, like, yeah, to right, me, sure. it's about the food and nutrition and, yeah. and physical health because if you keep people unhealthy through alcohol, through mm. food, and listen, it is a self, you, this is the society we live in. Like, we'll never, it, as long as we're in a democracy, this is what makes America great. Like yeah. we're going to have all the choice, Fruit Loops, we're going to have Cracklin' Oat brand, or you can just have a piece of fruit for breakfast. You get to choose, but we're going to offer it. Right. So it does come down to that self-sovereignty, self-empowered yeah. decision. And I'd rather live in that society than one that tells me, mm, you can only have Fruit Loops right. for, for breakfast, right? right? No, and exactly. we're going to make you sick. So yeah. I'm happy for that. But in a way... Like there has to be at the level of business, some consciousness of like, we actually are going to do, try to do right for the greater amount of people or this lack of empowering the individual to make the right choice. Instead, we weaken the individual by promoting mm -hmm. something else for other reasons. Yeah. Money. Well, I, mean, well, I, mean, I just don't understand how these people sleep at night and, and your, your analysis of that personality disorder maybe helps me <laughs> a little bit because i'm always like i tend to fall on the side of maybe a little naivete and mm. say like people are generally good i do believe that but man if there's evil in the world it's in a it is well, in i yeah. see it in a couple people yeah yeah i mean it's it's no there's, there's no doubt there's um uh there's a lot of choices out there right now to kind of for people to decide where they want to fall as far as, you know, how, how informed do they want to be? How much do they want to go along and trust? I mean, and I'm not saying I know the answer to any of that, but it really is highly individual. I mean, I think, I think for me, what's so counterintuitive is when you look at the whole kind of abortion issue and, and how women have fought for years to have the permission to do things for, the, for their own body. Mm -hmm. and then when and then you have something like this where, you know, Rather than saying, "Oh, well, what's the thing that's best for your body?" You're being told it's 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 my main issue with the entire medical industry. It's like it's not healthcare; it's disease care. It's yeah. like it's, if you have this disease or you don't want to get this disease, take this drug. And I'm not always convinced. And I'm not just saying that all drugs are bad, but I think there needs to be debate. There needs to be people talking about. It. You need to get kind of informed both sides, and then you, to the best of your ability, after looking at those things, make your best decision but when you when you you know when you live in this kind of cancel culture where you can't even have open debates then that's where my skepticism starts to rise there <laughs> like, goes the I'm radar like, again I'm like there's got to be you know there's feels like there's an agenda going on here and, you know i'm yeah. not claiming i know what that is but i you know i just see the signs because i've i've been in those environments you know yeah. i've been in those environments where where it's you know it's very much kind of 
you know, this way or the highway. And, uh, and, uh, and that, you know, gives me, that's a red flag. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people that I talk to and listen to, same as you, it's not so much good, bad, it's informed consent. Yeah. You need to inform people on the side effects. You need to, uh, you can, and then you can consent, right? You need to give people the option of fruit loops or kale and eggs or a bagel. And then you get to make the decision, but you need to inform people about diabetes. You need to inform people about the truth. You need to inform people that most of these deaths came from unhealthy people. Yeah. Period. Right. And it's not mean. It's not cruel. It's just fact. Yeah. So, uh, like someone who is extremely empathetic and cries mm. at everything, the littlest thing, it's like, well, I'm also not ignorant to fact. Like, I care yeah. about your feelings, but if you really love someone, then you tell them the truth. Yeah. If you really care for someone, for example, like, what, you know, the situation you were in, I'm sure people tried to tell you. Or maybe oh, not. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think I think they tried, but I, I think a lot of people didn't understand. You know, it's like we were we were way out of uh, everyone's pay grade. Like, you know, yeah. no, no one really understood <laughs> how cults worked. You know, the, how this whole mind control thing worked. Uh, so, you know, and and that's and that's why I say that's what you come up against people's natural reaction to uh, go to guilt and say they should have done more the truth is no one no yeah. one really I, I i was so indoctrinated i couldn't hear what someone was having to say i think a lot of the people who were trying their best still were were at limited information at best right. as well so I, it was just a perfect storm but ultimately like i've tried to express it served me in some really really powerful ways so i'll well, take it- i'll take the whole you know the good with the bad and uh you know it's uh I'll never be born at cocktail parties, you know. <laughs> you are not. That's one thing. Well, we actually met right when you were coming through. Coming. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. had no idea about yeah. any of this. I, I think I was. I, I don't know if I was talking about it yet when we first met. No. Yeah. I mean, you didn't tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I telling anybody because I I, it, I didn't figure it out really because at that time I was living with Dar, right? My buddy Dar. Yeah, that's yeah. where I. So so that's. It was living with Dar, who was um, uh, you know, one of the ex-members who I connected with here in L.A. Um, and it's always easy to see someone else's situation than your own, right? Right, so, right, right. So I could see he was having all sorts of challenges. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I think something bad happened here. So we ended up, I was in a crazy living situation. He was in a crazy living situation. So we ended up becoming roommates. And we spent like six, that first six months, to the best of our ability, deconstructing what had happened in the oh, group. Oh, what a gift, though. And so it's like, remember when this happened? That was weird. Like, what do you think was going on there? And and oh. that process got us to the point where, and I don't remember whether it was he or, or you know, him or me, you know, but uh, it was, it was, you know, basically saying, I don't know, people are saying it's a cult. You think it'd be a cult? It's like, no, 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 there's no way it's a cult. Like, for years, I'm saying it can't be a cult. And then again, this is a very uninformed ignorant point of view because i mean all i knew from cults was what everyone else knew like jonestown and mm-hmm. you know the uh you know, who are the guys the uh heaven's gate you know all those people you know, all those you know these extreme situations that you know in my first experiences visiting the leader up in new york was going to studio 54 i'm like could have been a cult and and because of that there's a lot of arrogance tied to that um attitude because i kept saying well if i was in it it can't be a cult because i would never join a cult 
you know, and I think that's where a lot of people fall prey. Yeah, it's you know because 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 not understanding, you just think it's not it's not that. So so that was the process where I could even consider the idea. So we would have met around that time, but it was it was it was around that time where I said, okay, I don't think it's a cult, but let me at least research it because people have been saying that. So maybe it was something like that but it wasn't that but let me at least research that so i can cross that off the list and maybe i'll get closer to what it really was and that was when i i um i went on the internet and i i found this best-selling book called uh, combating cult mind control by uh steve hassan dr steve hassan now he's a become a dear friend of mine but um and he was an ex-mooney and i i knew about the moonies growing up and they were like people in airports with like orange costumes and shaved heads i'm like who would get involved with something like that? I don't. I don't know if I'm going to yeah. trust what this guy read. Yeah, yeah. And and the first kind of forty or fifty pages was his indoctrination process of how they had, they had caught and gotten him involved. And that's when boy, you could have just <laughs> changed the names. I'm like, but I mean, that, it was a beautiful moment from the point of view that I had the diagnosis, I knew what the truth was. And I knew there was a, a, a route and a way out. Mm. And so as, as humiliating and horrifying as it was to be like, not only was I a cult member, but I was like a textbook cult member. Like, like, wasn't like <laughs> they write the, books about wasn't me. Like, I was in the special, <laughs> special. cult. It's like, no, it's like, no, you A, B, C, D. You did all of them. I was like, oh, great. So no specialness here at all. Just 100% gullible. Yeah, just, well, that's what I find. Well, well, and it's not necessarily gullibility, well, know. you know. But 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 it and, and and I tell you the reason I, I point that out is because a really important part of the recovery process is to be gracious about how it happened yes. and to not use phrases like "oh, I lost twenty years of my life" or mm. or I or you know or I you know like in my case um, I I. I volunteered a lot of money to, you know, I, I gave money away and, and, but you know, I would say that was my tuition at the school of hard knocks. Now, <laughs> I'll be pre- pre- pretty expensive, but, but well, taught then- me some valuable life lessons. So that's the recovery process of saying, listen, it's not like I was absent and I just, you know, my whole, I sold my whole life away and didn't learn anything during this period. I was just being abused. But, you know, one of the most important questions you can Ask someone when you if you if you if it's one to talk about a cultic relationship, and like I said, most of these are one on ones. The, the the question you want to avoid is, well, why didn't you just leave? Yeah. Because that is a really insensitive question. That that it would be like me saying to you, oh Jen, you know, um, I don't tell many people this, but when I was twenty one, I, I was raped. And you would look back at me and go, well, what were you wearing that night? Yeah. So that question saying, why did you... Leaving's really not an option when you're in this highly abusive environment. The question that should be asked is, what made you stay? Because that mm. opens a much more interesting can of worms of... Because these situations are multifaceted. It's not, it, Listen, we're not masochists. You wouldn't stay in something that was just highly abusive every day there's either uh, there's either ideals you know again or you know aspirations attached to it that we feel very very you know uh you know protective of and and i was very idealistic and the fact that we were supposedly living these ideals which i you know now frame in a different way now that we talked about it earlier that was that you know i was trying to strive for this kind of enlightened self-aware perfect being which is an impossible task but by just trying to do it 
was was I think a courageous thing, and a lot of yeah. people probably wouldn't do that in their life. Like if faced with that opportunity to say, "Listen, if you get involved with us, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to make the world a better place, become better humans, become better friends, become better, you know, citizens. You know, actually make the planet better, so to speak." Well, listen, a lot of Sign people, me up. yeah, a lot of people yeah. would, wouldn't say. So what do I have to do? Oh, you t- just put all your own selfish hopes, beliefs. And ambitions to decide for one lifetime, and you'll be out. You'll you'll take yourself out of the karmic wheel. You won't even have to come back here. Again. Out of Maya, yeah, or and the, whatever. Yeah, yeah. The so it's, it's yeah. whatever that thing is. And so I'm like, just one lifetime. Okay, all right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. Which it's not a lot of people would do. So I don't yeah. beat myself up for that. Hell, <laughs> of course, yeah, wasn't even remotely that. But but that's what a lot of that Intention. recovery process is yeah. like. And, and and it's also recognizing that. You can't just paint it with one brush and say yeah. it was bad. That you have to literally go back and say, okay, I got exposed like to the betas. Like, hey, you know, a lot of that information really resonates with me. Yeah. And that was a positive influence. Hey, you know, other beliefs came in. These conspiracy theories. That was a total control trip. That was actually that actually made me feel less and less powerful rather than empowered. It was, you know, as I was supposedly seeking the truth, I felt more hopeless. You know, that was not a good thing. So you go through and you have to kind of go through all those kind of shades of gray and, and pull out the assets and reject the things that didn't work. And that's the recovery process. Yeah. But the idea of just wanting to put it behind you and say, oh, a little bent, a little bump on the road. Let me just move forward. Boy, that's not the way our psyches work, and that's where, like I said, it's been really interesting to witness some people that um, have, you know, have avoided that Taking and see, that route. And see yeah. they're kind of, like I said, stuck. Well, and this probably should have been done in the in the beginning of the podcast, but this is what I find so interesting about your story, and that you alluded to. It's you weren't gullible at all. Like you were, and you weren't in a place of like. Um, maybe vulnerability but you played football at princeton Mm -hmm. you were you were at princeton so clearly you were smart and you were a model like a successful model so you weren't in some like 24 7 i think people think you're on the ranch or you're in this thing you were out in the world one so it, it was hidden well right well yeah i mean i mean it's like a lot of things hidden in plain sight i mean you know the the I guess the way I would describe it is um, once, once you've been indoctrinated, you know, you would think like living under, like you're talking about the 24-7, you know, captivity would really be awful. But, um, and, and I'm not saying it isn't, it is. I, you know, but, but my situation, once I had been indoctrinated and knew the rules, so to speak, and I, would, I was off, I was usually on the road over 300 days a year, you know, when I was modeling. So... I was on my own a lot and staying in hotel rooms and, you know, jumping, you know, on airplanes like people would hop on the subway, you know, like and and so you would think, oh, well, you know, you must have, you know, had lots of freedom and could do lots of crazy things. Well, the truth was I could, but because I had been indoctrinated, I yeah, knew I shouldn't. So I was like my own worst prison guard. Like, you know, I would I knew what I was supposed to be doing, even though. Those people living in 24-7, they had limited temptations from that point of view, where I lived in the realm of temptation. Right. So, and so, the, the so, most temptation. Yeah, like, so, so I, but I had to check in every day with them. And so I'd have mm. to make this phone call and report back on how I had kind of lived by the principles that day. And, you know, I knew on some level that I did not do as well as I should have. So I would, I would try to find some middle ground where I was like, 
admit, admitting some of the things I didn't do so well, but not admitting everything because I didn't want to get in trouble. Right. So, so that was the worst part of my living that double life was I was harsher on myself than anyone. And then I was lying to the group because I didn't want to be as transparent that I wasn't really able to exhibit these principles out in the world. Like, I mean, it's impossible, but, but you're being told you can. And, uh, and because of that, I always felt like I was lying to them. And likewise, the people that I had on the outside, so-called outside the circle of the group, who I was not supposed to have friendships with, because, you know, it's very, it's very isolationist, you know, us versus them. It's kind of like we pulled you out of the matrix. Be careful every time you're in the matrix. So I was spending most of my time in the matrix, and I actually really cared about the people in the matrix. And I found there were some people that were great, and just because they didn't have our belief system or our exposure to whatever, I still really cared about them and loved them, but I could never admit that to the group because that was basically yeah. a betrayal. Yeah. So I just felt like I was lying to everybody all the time. And that was like a Pac-Man EDM, my soul. And that's why I think I think you do the same thing when you're an addict, where you're just lying all the time. Mm-hmm. And and that's why the, the so-called confessional phase of the recovery is so predominant. I know I experienced it because when I finally could admit that I've been in a cult, man, the, the first year, you you couldn't get me three minutes in a conversation before I wouldn't blurt it out. Like, like I mean, <laughs> I would literally be in a cab, like in New York, and, oh, I need to go to 48th and, and 2nd. Did I tell you I was in a cult? <laughs> yeah. No, really, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, it was like, it was like I just... You had, need to get it off your chest. I, well, yeah, and, and I was so desperate to be seen yeah. in, 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 a, in a truer context than the, than the camouflage I'd gotten really great at putting on for years. And I lived this double life. So I was really good at, at compartmentalizing and putting on that thing and looking like the guy that had his act together. You could put a suit on him and he could sell it and it looks like he's got it all. Um, so I knew all about that and it felt so much of a lie that I was like, whatever you're going to think, I don't care, but you're going to at least hear that this is, you know, not the only thing I've done, but part of who I am, and I'm going to own it. And then I, you know, and I, and I, and quite honestly, I, I got off a little bit on the shock value of it, and I had to learn to temper that. And now I, now, now I just find, uh, I still talk about it a lot, but I still, I, I find a much more gentler way to kind of introduce it. Yeah, and you're doing. I, I feel like you talk about it and share it to help others. It's not a, it's not listen to my story because listen to my story i'm special and it's it's really to help others well yeah i mean i i think like i said earlier i think we all have cultural relationships you know we all do Mm -hmm. and until we all start speaking the same language and the same like nomenclature um you know i just want to make it cool to talk about your cultic experience it's like no big deal like (laughs) yeah it's like no what's the big deal you know it's a great hashtag, you know. I got out, and uh, <laughs> I'm free. And, and uh, yeah, it's, I think it's it's really really about that. And, and I actually, you know, it took me three attempts to escape. And when I finally escaped, it was the crack of dawn on um, July 4th. It was actually you know July 3rd, oh, wow. like two thirty in the morning. So when I hear Independence Day, I it, for me it's like my freedom anniversary. You know, like uh, it really means a lot to me. It's 22 years this year. Congratulations. Thank you. I just did a post. I Actually, for Independence Day. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, oh. For Independence Day, I did a post that said, there is no greater freedom than the freedom of being yourself. Yeah. But when you're living a lie, you know. Well, that's the thing. Big or small, like it will, yeah. it will eat at you in some way. And then you have to find a way to perpetuate that lie. 
Yeah, I, you know, it's it's so interesting the the lying thing because it's like, like my dad. I think my dad's like incapable of telling a lie, which to me is like superhuman on one level. And then like I don't know how he gets through life that way. Like, <laughs> I mean, and he gets himself in hot water sometimes too. Sometimes yeah. like dad, you don't need to say that. Yeah. But but, but um, yeah, because because I think you know lying is such a because when I think of like white lies, like leaving something out or whatever. I mean. I consider myself like honorable and, 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 and honest for the most part, but man, I'm always kind of like maneuvering and, and doing things that just, you know, aren't completely transparent all the time. Cause I think you need to, you can't just tell everybody everything. I, I, I certainly learned in Hollywood, um, mm. my kind of nature to be kind and service oriented very often gets interpreted as being weak and that really burns me you know mm -hmm. but just trying to teach treat people with respect and kind of guidance and and and, uh, and be you know very very respectful and 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 just kind um, doesn't always uh, bump people in a, in a way where they you know consider that to be an asset and you know that's been really really uh, eye-opening you know to be in, and I and I love storytelling I love the business from that point of view but you know, the power dynamics that I see go on sometimes is like, oof. So I, you know, I stay in that independent space because, you know, yeah. I get to go and make the movies without someone telling us how to do it. And, yeah. you know, what we're doing is wrong 90% of the time or whatever. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a real big business. So there's still some some show art in the indie world, but uh, you know, the rest of it's all very much show business, you know. And, uh, and this and it's a balance. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's... Yeah, from a certain point of view, I, there was aspirations I had when I was younger to wanting to, you know, maybe you know do these massive, massive, you know, stories. And you know, I love blockbusters. I'm a big Marvel fan and all those sort of things. But you know, I, I'm really happy with the things that have worked out the way I've had. And you know, I love the I love writing the stories I write. And you know, I, I very much resonate, as you can imagine, with um, rather than the typical protagonist and antagonist being two different individuals, I, I tend to write stories where the person's kind of facing and traumatized by their own inner demons and trying to find a way to yeah. make peace with that, to kind of transform and, and find a solution to the situation they find themselves in. And I find those stories really kind of interesting. And that's kind of my wheelhouse. Yeah. So, you know, you write what you know. It's what they've uh, been saying for centuries. Yeah. To me, there's no better place than being on a movie set. Like, I love the camaraderie. It's the only yeah. group dynamic that I find fun, yeah. you know, because after everything I've gone through, you can imagine, I kind of stay away from the groups. Um, but well, at some point, you know it dismembers, you know? Well, yeah, like the you do, exactly. And so, yeah, and, and then, you know, I, I try to, um, uh, certainly when I'm a producer, I certainly try to create the environment where everyone feels empowered and, and yeah. important. I mean, it's, it's really, truly, you're as strong as the weakest link. So um, I love all that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a finite type of thing. It's one of the things I think that that I wish people would warn you about. The you know, the first few movies I did where you like go on on set or you go on location and you bond with these people. You have this yeah. kind of really a great experience and then the movie wraps and everyone just hightails it and like it's quite traumatizing. I yeah, you know? I've experienced it. Even on yeah. short set, yeah, right? Like yeah. you're like you're bonding with these people and you think, Oh, I'm gonna be friends with these people yeah, forever yeah. and you yeah. never see them again. Yeah. yeah. So so all of those things are, are have been really interesting to go down that road and um but uh yeah. So I, I just keep my hands in plenty of cookie jars and we'll see what plays out. Yeah. 
And what about resources for people? Well, I would really recommend um, that book, Combating Cult Mind Control, I think is, is uh, actually the, uh, uh, that book has just been, you know, I think it's 25th anniversary and my story is actually in that book now. So nice. that's kind of the way it's come they full circle. It. Yeah, they revised it. Um, but then uh, there's an organization called ICSA, which um, is the International Cultic Studies Association, and they do tons of seminars and and um, like they have, a, they have a daily kind of a newsletter that's covering anything kind of cultic related that's happening anywhere in the world. Um, they've got a massive reading list and and just library of stuff on their website. Um, I think they're probably the best. I mean, that to me, the tragedy is right now. There's really no kind of um, cult rehab place. You know, when I when I got out of uh, my group, there was a place in Ohio that you went for about two weeks, and you had one-on-one counseling, and then you had group therapy. And there's no place like that right now, and um, and that's unfortunate because um, yeah, we just don't have that many people that are really qualified to help people come through those situations. So I'm hoping that. I would personally like to be able to put um, some things in curriculum that would maybe alter um, the current landscape where you would actually basically give, give courses in, for lack of a better description, common sense, where you learn about influence techniques, manipulation tactics, mind control, all these sort of things that, that people working angles do. So mm. you just kind of be aware of hypnosis how it works so that when you get exposed to it, you've got some red flags um, where you can just kind of go, oh, wait, I've read about this, or I remember mm. hearing about this. Because I think, like anything, if you're not really uh, exposed to it when, you're, when it's happening, you just have no idea. And mind control works on everybody. You just have to be receptive. Now, if you're not interested in what I supposedly have to sell, well, then it's not going to work. But if you are interested, toast. You're toast. Yeah. So... Um, but yeah, so I think um, yeah, uh, Ix is probably the best one out there. But there's a there's lots of podcasts. I mean, a couple of friends of mine um, from uh, they were in the Nexium group. They're doing a podcast called it's a little bit culty. They're doing a nice job. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's I think yeah, it's 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 this type of thing that uh, I think it's becoming more and more um, of you know in the uh, lexicon of our of our lives i think people whether it's politics whether it's um whether it's you know the uh, military they're realizing that a lot of indoctrination is going on all over the place and so the more we understand those power dynamics i think the better we can make informed consent Correct. you know and so i'm all for informed consent awesome thank you Hoyt. thank you jen Oh, thank you so much for listening to that very important conversation with Hoyt Richards. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you gained some wisdom from it. And thank you for being on this journey with me for the past few months. I am by no means ending this podcast. However, I am going to take a little bit of a summer break. I have a full roster for future interviews that you won't want to miss. In the meantime, you can take the next month or so to enjoy and soak in all the amazing conversations thus far. If any of them hit you in the heart, please feel free to share and leave a review on iTunes. It would mean so much to me. In the meantime, stay centered and keep that connection with yourself and above.